Well, if you'd uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, uh, or if you don't have a Bible or don't want to look in the Bible, looks like it's in the, the bulletin here. Uh, I bring you greetings from Sterling Park Baptist Church. So the brothers and sisters there prayed for you all uh, this morning, and uh, we have been following uh, the work of the Lord uh, here from a distance uh, through my friendship with Sean, and we're uh, um, rejoicing to see all that God's doing. So it's a real pleasure for me to be here and to see with my own eyes uh, what it is the Lord's doing here. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 9 to 13. It says there, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, as we think about this passage, let me start with a question for you. Uh, actually, a couple of questions. First, with whom would you most like to have dinner? So you can pick the circumstances. It's not important whether you're having them over to your home, you're meeting at a fancy restaurant, right? Assuming they're paying, right? Nothing's off limits. I'm wondering about the identity of the person that you'd want to eat with. Who would you choose? Let's say no one's off limits. Anyone from any time and any place in history, would it, would it be a family member that's passed away that you really miss? Would it be a figure from history, maybe a historical hero like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr.? Uh, would, it, would it be a sports hero, uh, maybe Bear Bryant or Nick Saban? See, that's contextualization. See what I did there? It's Alabama. Eh? Eh? Uh, maybe, maybe a famous author. Right, someone like William Shakespeare or, or Charles Dickens, a politician, Ronald Reagan, JFK. Right, whoever it is that you might choose, maybe you can imagine what it would be like to have dinner with them. You'd get to know them in an entirely different way. Right? You, could, you could ask questions, you could hear their stories, you could, you could laugh at their jokes. Maybe, as they got to know you, if they're still alive, there'd even be a sort of ongoing relationship. But now a second question, the opposite question. What kind of person could you least imagine having dinner with? Maybe you're politically conservative. And so imagine your horror if you found yourself seated at the dinner table with the previous president. Maybe you're politically progressive. And imagine your horror if you found yourself seated at the table with the current president. Think about it for a second. With whom would you absolutely, under no circumstance, want to sit down and share a meal? Uh, maybe it's somebody you think is dangerous, like a, a gang member or a terrorist. 
or somebody you think is despicable, like the, the CEO of a company that knowingly pollutes the environment. Maybe it's someone who spends their life advocating for a different perspective than yours when it comes to a social issue like abortion or LGBTQ matters. Again, whatever it is, whoever that person would be, imagine how the meal would go. What would you talk about except for how despicable you find them? Right? What, what if you actually found out you enjoyed their company? that you actually liked them after you got to know them? How would you be able to communicate your disapproval clearly enough to your buddies so that your friends and family didn't think that you were a sellout for having dinner with this person? Right? After all, having dinner with someone, it's a way of, of communicating a, a relationship. Right? It's, it's affirming someone. It's recognizing them. We see in our passage from Matthew's Gospel this morning that Jesus' choice of dinner companions is ruffling quite a few feathers. Uh, you may, if you know Matthew's gospel, you may remember Jesus at this point is uh, something of a celebrity. Matthew 7 verse 28 tells us that his teaching was astonishing people. He's basically going around and he's healing people, he's performing miracles, he's, he's teaching these extraordinary things, and, and huge crowds are flocking to him. So when Jesus rolls into town... One of the big questions is, where's he going for dinner? Who's he going to eat with? Uh, Who is he going to honor with his presence? Who is important enough that Jesus is going to spend time with them? Uh, Surely this was the most exciting thing going on in the little seaside town of Capernaum on this day. Right, there is no bigger show in this place of the world at this time than Jesus. He's what everyone's talking about from the hinterlands into the capital city of Jerusalem. And so you can imagine the shock when we read there in verse 10 that Jesus reclined at table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. As you're reading through, if you understand what's going on there, you, the, the record should skip. You're like, wait, wait, what? Jesus and his disciples are hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And not just that, but it says there, many tax collectors and sinners. And not just that, but Jesus was letting them recline with him. Right? He wasn't repulsed by them. He wasn't merely tolerating them, but he had actually settled into a posture of fellowship with them. He, he had put his feet up. He was hanging out with these people. So it's no surprise what we read there in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees are the religious experts. They're the ones who made the rules about who was in and who was out when it came to religious matters. They were the ones you would think a prominent rabbi like Jesus would want to hang out with. They were the good guys, strict, disciplined, serious, doing things the right way. And one of the ways they displayed to the world their goodness was by staying really far away from bad people. Right, that word sinners there, when it says that sinners came, and when they're asking, why does he eat with sinners? Uh, don't think sin like maybe you and I struggle with, with sins like, like pride and maybe irritability. Right, think like sinners, capital S. Right, notorious, scandalous sinners. Right, these were people who, who didn't abide by sort of established norms for acceptable behavior. 
Right? When you read sinners there, these are, these are people who are sleeping with the wrong people, making money in all the wrong ways, getting drunk at all the parties, right? and they didn't really care that much. Right? These were people who knew they weren't good people. They knew they weren't welcome in polite society. They weren't accepted as upstanding Jews. And so you see the kind of central drama for this little passage. And what I want to do with our time this morning is, is answer the question, why? I want to answer the question that the Pharisees asked the disciples. Why does Jesus choose to eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think if we answer that question, we're going to learn something really important about Jesus and what he came to do and what it means to be his follower. But before we dig in too far into that, we've got to go back and see our context just a little bit. It's set for us there in verse 9 at the beginning of our passage. We, eat, we meet our author, Matthew, for the first time. We read there, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So earlier in chapter 9, Jesus had returned from his trip across the Sea of Galilee He was in something of his adopted hometown of Capernaum, and he healed a paralyzed man. And he started a a controversy by asserting his right to forgive this paralyzed man's sins. And so now Jesus moves on from that house where he performed that miracle, and as he's going along, he sees this man, Matthew, sitting at a tax booth. That means that Matthew's a tax collector, and that's really significant. So let me just fill you in on the background there. At this point in history, this region, uh, uh, Palestine in the ancient Near East, it's, it's occupied by the Roman Empire. And the one thing that Rome would do was, you, the Roman Empire was so big, you couldn't have like Roman government in every sort of far-flung part of the empire. And so what they would do is they would put some of their soldiers there, they would prop up a local government, and they would just like tax the tar out of people. And they would use that money to kind of keep the people poor, and they would use that money to support their troops there in the region. And so one of the ways they imposed taxes was by collecting tolls along the roads, and that seems like what Matthew was doing. Uh, The Romans would sell the rights to collect taxes to anyone who had enough money to put it up front. So if the Romans were like, hey, we want to get $100,000 out of Decatur, Alabama, right? Somebody who puts up the 100000 then has a right to go shake down everybody in Decatur to get as much money as they can. So people would buy the rights to collect the taxes along the roads, and whatever they could collect above and beyond what was expected, they could just put in their pocket. So tax collectors were the worst kind of traders. They were helping the enemy. They were helping to entrench and pay for the invading army. Right? They, were, they were agents of economic deprivation. They were thieves. They were extortionists. They, they harassed and oppressed innocent people for their own gain. Right, again, imagine for a second that a foreign nation invaded and occupied your hometown. And then imagine they levied taxes on you that were so brutal that you had to scratch and work like a dog and hope and pray that you'd have enough money left over at the end of the day to feed your family. Okay, just imagine how frustrating, how difficult, how despair-filled you'd be. Then imagine your next-door neighbor. Well, he goes to work for that government. He begins to enrich himself by by extorting money from you. He he starts shaking you down to pay for the the enemy army and, and making himself rich at the same time. Right? How would you feel about your neighbor? 
right? You get a little sense of why tax collectors were so despised. Right? They were making themselves rich off the, off the backs of their own people. Right? So a tax collector wasn't allowed to testify in court. They weren't allowed to come into the temple. Uh, according to some Jewish legal experts at the time, it was impossible to commit a crime against a tax collector. Right? You could steal your taxes back from them. You were allowed to cheat them. You were allowed to physically abuse them if you could get away with it. So when we read about Matthew sitting at his tax booth there, you've got to think this guy is the absolute worst. He is a horrible person who's done horrible things. He obviously doesn't care what other people think of him or he wouldn't have chosen this line of work. And so when Jesus passes by there in verse 9, well, we know exactly what to expect, don't we? Jesus is going to do exactly what we would do. He's going to set things straight. He's going to insult that traitor. He's going to condemn him. Maybe he's going to bust out a sermon about all these terrible people who are ruining our country. At the very least, he's going to shun him. He's going to ignore him. He's going to snub him, right? Make sure that he knows that he's not okay. Then the most extraordinary thing happens. Jesus walks along. He doesn't hiss or, or taunt this tax collector. He calls him. I want you to be with me. I want you to be one of my disciples. We see there at the end of verse 9, Matthew responds by simply dropping everything and following after Jesus. Next thing we know in verse 10, Jesus is reclining at table with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. Luke's account of this event tells us something that Matthew is probably too humble to tell us, and that is that this, this dinner party happens at Matthew's house. That's the context in which the Pharisees ask this question of Jesus' disciples. Why? Why on earth is Jesus eating with these people? And friends, you don't really understand what's going on in the story until you understand that that's a really good question. We, we tend to read you know, these stories. If you know the Bible, you're like, oh, tax collectors, well, they're the kind of good guys. And Pharisees, they're the jerks. But, but no, the Pharisees are actually the good guys in the story. Right? They're the ones who did everything right. They're the ones asking the right question here. Again, imagine that Jesus came to the United States right now. What would you expect that he would do? I mean, certainly he'd attend the National Prayer Breakfast, right? He'd go to all the big Christian conferences. Well, I guess first he'd have to, like, clear COVID and then, you know, go to the big Christian conferences, right? He'd certainly do interviews on all the Christian blogs and podcasts, right? How do you think most evangelical church leaders would respond if Jesus came and he started going to dinner with outspoken LGBTQ activists. And he started hanging out with people who lobbied for abortion rights, with, with pornographic film stars, or the people who've been rioting and looting in the cities. Wouldn't you be frustrated? Wouldn't, wouldn't you feel betrayed in some way? Jesus, what are you doing with these people? We're, we're the good guys. Don't you realize they're the bad people? They're what's wrong with the world. Are you saying that that they're actually okay? Right, the Pharisees' question, it's understandable. Why is Jesus hanging out with these people? It's scandalous. Look at how Jesus answers there in verses 12 and 13. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus uses an image there that's strong and memorable. He compares himself to a doctor. Right? No one asks a doctor, why do you spend all day hanging out with sick people? What's wrong with you? Right? A doctor knows those are the people who need the help. And those are the people who know they need the help. And so in the same way that a physician goes to the physically sick, so Jesus is saying that he is the great physician of our souls. And so he's going to those who are spiritually sick. Can you see there at the end of verse 13, Jesus is explaining his mission to us. Here is God himself, the entirely divine Son of God who has always existed and who will always exist. He's come to earth, taking on human flesh, and here he's telling us why. What did he come to do? He says he came to call sinners. He calls sinners to repentance, to leave behind their ways, to leave behind their soul-destroying futile efforts to find happiness and meaning and life, their, their worthless efforts to make life okay through sex and money and alcohol. Jesus is calling them to leave behind all of the ways that they've been hurt and despised and rejected and ostracized, and he's calling them to come follow after him, just like he called Matthew. He's calling them to find rest for their souls. He's calling them to find forgiveness and healing and new life and a restored relationship with God. Jesus left the Father's side. He left the riches of heaven. He took on human flesh in order to do exactly this, to call sinners to himself. Friends, that's what God's salvation looks like. He didn't merely make himself available. He didn't leave clues to where we could find him. What we see here is that God's Son came after sinners. He came to where sinners were. He ate dinner with sinners. He hung out with crooks and prostitutes. He went to where they were because he knew they wouldn't come to him any more than lost sheep find their shepherd. He knew that if he didn't go, if he didn't call them, they were never going to come. And here's the thing, as Matthew's gospel unfolds, what you see is that this project of of calling sinners, it's going to cost Jesus everything. Jesus didn't come, it turns out, to call sinners just like you and I might sort of run a Saturday afternoon uh, errand. It wasn't like something on his to-do list that he just kind of like, all right, I've called sinners, let's move on. No, what it was going to mean for Jesus is that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. And they would mock him and treat him shamefully. They would spit on him and flog him. And as if that weren't enough, he would be nailed to a cross and left to die like the worst kind of sinner. And as Jesus hung on that cross, even though he'd done no wrong at all, he took the punishment that the sins of his people deserved. As Jesus hung on the cross, God the Father laid on him all of the wrath, all of the punishment that our sins deserve, that that Matthew's sins deserved. It turns out the physician healed the sick by taking the disease on himself. He bore our guilt so that we could be called into new life, so that we could enjoy freedom from guilt and fear and shame. And Jesus rose from the dead. And he's alive now so that we can be united to him by faith and we can experience eternal life with him. We started with a question, why 
would Jesus eat with people like that? And the answer, I think, from this passage is as clear as it is shocking to us because those are the kind of people he came to call. And so with that said, let me just point out three things I think we need to to see from this passage, three ways this passage I think can be particularly helpful to us. First, and I'll I'll be brief here, I think this story about the calling of Matthew, it's meant to give us a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple. You see what Matthew does when Jesus calls him. There in verse 9, Jesus says, follow me. And then what does Matthew do in response? Simply says, he rose and followed him. See, Matthew's sitting at his tax collector booth. He's doing his thing. He's making his money. And he hears Jesus' call, and he simply goes. That's really significant. Matthew is almost certainly an extraordinarily rich man. And he would have sacrificed a lot. He would have suffered quite a bit of scorn, quite a bit of contempt from his community in pursuit of this fortune. But here, it appears that he just ups and leaves. No indication that he ever went back to it. No indication that he ever had real money again in his entire life. Right? Throughout Matthew's account of Jesus' teaching and ministry, there is, there is a tension that builds up, and we have to hold to both sides of the tension. We have to insist on both truths. On one side is this picture of Jesus as far more merciful, far more loving, far more compassionate and kind than we would ever dare to expect. Right? Jesus is caring towards people that we would not necessarily expect him to care about people that weren't sort of at the front of of the line when it comes to society. Lepers, cripples, foreigners, tax collectors, sinners. But on the other hand of this tension, we also see the truth that the demands of discipleship are far more rigorous than we might imagine. Jesus is more merciful and compassionate than we might dare to hope, and being his disciple is, is more costly than we might naturally think. It turns out the only way to follow Jesus is on his terms. As Matthew's gospel progresses, it becomes clear through multiple interactions, Jesus does not accept halfway disciples. His call places a 100% claim on our lives. So if you look at Matthew chapter 8, the previous chapter, there are two would-be disciples who are, who are cautioned. When they come to Jesus and they're, they're jazzed up and they're ready to follow him, Jesus simply warns them, you need to count the cost. You need to figure out whether you're really all in to follow Jesus on his terms. And so Matthew reminds us that the call of Jesus, when he calls us, it's a, it's a call that has priority over everything else that we hold dear. Second, and we'll spend more time on this, is I think that in this passage we see a very striking warning to the self-righteous. There in verse 13, Jesus tells us why he came. We've seen that he came to call sinners. And that's shocking because those are the people we would expect that he would reject. But what might be just as shocking is what he tells us about what he didn't come to do. There in verse uh, verse 13, he says, I did not come to call the righteous. Right? In context, Jesus is clearly poking at the Pharisees. They're the ones questioning him there in verse 11. 
And I don't think we're meant to understand that Jesus really thinks that the Pharisees are, are genuinely righteous, that they're good enough on their own terms to be right with God. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20, he, he, he says, look, your, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Right? They think they're righteous, but they're actually not. Jesus repeatedly there in the Sermon on the Mount skewers the, the Pharisees' version of righteousness. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, he calls them vipers and whitewashed tombs. So here when Jesus refers to them as the righteous, he's speaking to them on the grounds of their own self-perception. We might say he came not to call the self-righteous, those who think they're righteous. Right? They, the Pharisees thought they were the ones who were right with God. They claimed to love him. They claimed to keep his law. Jesus says something important there in verse 13. He gives them a rationale for his mission. He says that he came to call sinners, and he explains why using the words of the prophet Hosea. If you look there in Matthew 9.13, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the part of Hosea that Jesus is referencing there, God is rebuking the people of Judah for their lack of love. And in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord drops this on him. He says, well, what do you think I want from you? Do you think what I really want from my people is long prayers and attendance at the temple and tithes and sacrifices? God's asking, do you, do you think what I want is a bunch of religious activity? He says, no, I desire mercy. I, I want you to love. Right? God, it turns out, has no interest in creating a bunch of religious programs that give people a bunch of things that they can do to make themselves feel good and righteous. No, God actually wants his people to be transformed, to be merciful and loving, to care about one another, to look out for one another. Right? It's not that sacrifices were unimportant in the Old Testament. Obviously, they were. The point is that people could never use strict obedience to God's commands as a cover for their lack of mercy and love. And so what does that have to do with the Pharisees? Why does Jesus throw that at them here? Why does he say, hey, how about you go and learn your Old Testament? How about you go take a look at Hosea 6.6? 6? Well, it turns out the Pharisees were awesome at the rules. They had religious practice down to a science. They did the sacrifice part Exactly right. But what was missing? Mercy. Love. They looked on tax collectors and sinners and they hated them. But they should have gone after them, right? If they were really righteous, they would have pursued in love and mercy. They should have helped these tax collectors and sinners. They should have prayed for them. They should have pleaded with them to turn back to God. Right? If they were really righteous, if they were as righteous as they thought they were, if they were righteous in the way that God defines righteousness, if they were actually loving and merciful, well, what would they have done? They would have called sinners to repentance. They would have moved towards them. They would have shared a meal with them. They would have done well, exactly what Jesus did, right? So Jesus says to them, look, I didn't come for you. I'm not here to heal people who think they're perfectly healthy. I'm not here for the self-righteous. I'm here for people who know they need me. So friends, maybe the most important question for each one of us this morning is this. Which one are you? Are you a sinner 
or are you righteous? Are you a sinner or are you self-righteous? Trusting in your own goodness. Trusting in your maybe religious performance. Look, here, we're at church on Sunday morning. Friends, this is challenging for us. I think if we just drift along with the current of our wider world, it's really hard for us to get to a place where we say we are sinners. Everything around us encourages us to think that we're great just the way we are. Right? It's widely assumed that the, the best way to be a healthy, well-adjusted person is to learn to accept yourself completely. And when you do see something there that's not quite right, you need to learn to forgive yourself for that. Right? The heroes in our popular stories are people who learn through experience to be true to themselves, right? to throw off the shackles of what other people tell them and how other people want them to change. And so it might be hard for us to come to the conclusion that we really are sinners, that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. It's hard for us to hear the call of Jesus that sinners ought to turn to him. We might be in danger of being so self-accepting, so comfortable, so confident in our own morality, in our attendance at church services, that when the great physician offers us healing, we simply say, "Uh, I'm not sick. So friend, how do you understand yourself as you stand before God? Do you see yourself as basically healthy? righteous? Or can you feel the weight and the depth of your own sin? I imagine there are several different kinds of people here this morning. I don't know many of you personally. Uh, Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe all of this sounds a little weird to you. Of course you're not sick. Of course you're not a terrible sinner. Uh, You're probably a basically good person. So what is all of this about? If that's the way you view yourself, I think Jesus would say that you, like the Pharisees, have a self-perception problem. If you think that you're basically okay, that that you've done enough, that you're kind of cruising along at a good altitude here, that you're not really spiritually sick, I think what Jesus would say to you is that it's not so much that you're healthy, is that you haven't come to grips with the fact that you're sick. God's word could not be clearer that each and every one of us, no matter how religious, no matter how polite, how successful, how nice, every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us needs to hear Jesus' call and turn to him. I think if you examine your life with, with a lot of honesty, you'll see that this is true. That you've built your life, you've built your identity on things other than God. That you've looked for meaning and purpose, and pleasure, and happiness in in lesser things, that you've given your love, your devotion, not to the creator, but to the creation. If you look over your life, maybe you've seen the fruits of, of this sin, bad habits that you can't change, broken relationships, guilt, selfishness, pride, anger, Striving for things only to get them and find out that they're really not as great as you thought they were. Still don't feel complete. You still don't feel whole. Friends, it's, it's not enough to be a decent person. Again, I don't know you perhaps, but I can almost promise you that you're not as good a person as these Pharisees were. 
But Jesus still saw them as sick and self-deceived. Right? They never saw their own need for him. The bigger problem here is that, is that they, they are blinded by their decency. So friend, can you see it? Can you see that you need help? The, the diagnosis is the first step to the cure. Only those who know they're sick will flee to the great physician for healing. There's a second kind of person I can imagine might be here this morning. Uh, perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and your problem is the opposite of the Pharisees. You feel the weight of your sin and guilt and shame so acutely that perhaps you feel like you could never, ever come to Jesus, that he would never accept someone like you. You've done awful things. You've thought terrible thoughts. There's no way, if Jesus knew you, that he would want you as a follower. But friend, I have good news for you. It says here that Jesus came for people exactly like you. He came to bring new life and hope and forgiveness to sinners like you and me. Don't ever imagine for a second that your sin is too great for Jesus to accept you. Even today, Jesus calls you just like he calls Matthew to follow him and find eternal life. Jesus calls you to leave your old life behind like Matthew left that tax collector booth, right? Matthew suddenly was able to see that, that everything he had, everything he had lived for, everything that he had accomplished and accrued wasn't worth anything compared to being with Jesus. Friend, that's what the Bible calls repentance, turning away. Uh, feeling genuine remorse, asking God's forgiveness and following after Jesus. Maybe a third kind of person, those of us who are already followers of Jesus, who by God's kind grace and call have made that choice that Matthew made to leave behind sin and follow after Jesus imperfectly but truly. I wonder if you can see how this little story applies to your life. There is no becoming a follower of Jesus without seeing your sin and turning from it. You, at some point, must come to realize that you are sick and you need a physician. But it's easy, if you're not careful, to slowly, perhaps imperceptibly over time, settle into the self-righteous posture of the Pharisees. After all, that is the besetting sin of religious people, right? Right? You see how the religious establishment reacts to Jesus. They are so puffed up, so blinded by their good behavior that they, they can't see what he's doing. They can't see that they need him. They despise anyone who's not as good as them. All the while missing the point that they're actually not as righteous as they thought they were. Friends, the danger is that because you're not a notorious sinner anymore, because over time, by God's grace, you've actually grown in holiness, it's easy to begin to think that you're not a sinner anymore. Even if you wouldn't say that with your mouth, even if you're well-taught enough that you wouldn't, you wouldn't actually confess that, it's easy to begin to act like that's true. And so, brothers and sisters, are you more or less aware of your need? Are you more or less aware of your own personal insufficiency, your spiritual inadequacy? Are you more or less aware of that than you were a few months ago or a few years ago or when you first became a follower of Christ? 
I think it's the experience of growing Christians that even as they grow in grace, even as they say no to sin and become more godly, I think it's the experience of growing Christians that even as that happens, uh, they become more aware of their sin, more aware of how far short they fall of God's standards. Right, as we see God's perfect holiness a little bit more clearly every day, every week, we see our own sin more clearly as well. And so I wonder if that's your experience. Christian, are you critical? Are you judgmental? Do you tend to be very aware of other people's faults and how much better you're doing than they are? Do you find yourself regularly amazed by the grace of God? Right When you sing depth of mercy, can there be mercy reaching even me. Do you actually mean that? Or do you just kind of sing that because that's the kind of thing you sing if you're a Christian? Do you find it almost inconceivable that God would choose to send his son to save someone like you? Are, Are you moved by the fact that the son of God shed his blood for someone like you? Maybe you know the story of John Newton, the the slave trader who was saved by the amazing grace of God. He became a pastor and an author. By the end of his life, he was one of the most respected men in all of England. And near the end of his life, he told a friend that that he was becoming an old man. And he found that his memory was fading. And so he told his friend, in fact, he's like, anymore I really can only remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. That's a man whose heart has been healed by the great physician. Church, this is one of the things you come to do each Sunday. This is one of the ways that you worship God and serve your brothers and sisters in the congregation. You remind one another of your great need. As you come together and you hear God's word and you respond in prayer and singing, you are, you are scraping away the barnacles of self-sufficiency that have grown up around your heart over the week. Right? You, you re- read and you sing and you pray until that sort of cold rhyme of self-righteousness has melted away. And then, and then you apply the fresh balm of the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's amazing love for us in His Son. You remember together, you rejoice together that, yeah, we are all Matthew. We are all Zacchaeus. We are all the woman caught in adultery. We are all the thief on the cross. We are all sin-sick people who have been healed by the great physician. Brothers and sisters, I think that's how we get the, the, the mercy and the love that God wants in his people that he talks about there in Hosea 6, 6 that Jesus references in our passage. That's how you wean your heart off of self-righteousness. That's how you find yourself captured by love and mercy rather than the mere performance of religious rituals. We remember the good news that Jesus didn't come for the good, but for the needy. That he didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And that's good news because if it weren't the case, then none of us would be saved. That brings us to the the third final thing I want us to notice in this passage, and that is, I think as we follow Jesus, we are meant to become more like him. As I say, experiencing this extraordinarily, extraordinary love, this, this sinner-seeking mercy, 
When we experience that, it, it makes us into people who are loving and merciful towards other sinners. Right? When we realize that Jesus loved us despite us, we begin to love other people despite them. Right? If we're going to leave and follow Jesus, leave everything and follow Jesus, we are, we are naturally going to love what he loved. And we're going to do what he did. And friends, that means that we need to love lost and sin-sick people. That we need to cultivate a posture of mercy and sympathy for those who are currently trapped in their sins. And, and we need to work to bring those people into contact with the great physician who can heal them. So you do that corporately as a church. It's one of the chief reasons you exist. You are here to proclaim the news that there is healing available to sin-sick people. Right? This is why your church is involved in missions around the world. Because sin-sick people need to hear of the great physician who came and died so that they could be healed. This is why you proclaim the gospel to one another every week when you gather. This is why you're teaching the children right now somewhere in this building about their need for a Savior. Right? It's also something that we do as individuals. Right? Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hung out with, he went to dinner parties with people who were inconvenient and messy and sloppy. Right? Those are the kind of people Jesus shared table fellowship with. So let me encourage you, if you're not already doing it, to simply befriend people who don't know Jesus. If you don't know how to get started with that, I would suggest you do what Jesus did. Have dinner with them. And once you're having dinner, love them. Be kind to them. Tell them what Jesus did for you. Right? I, don't, I don't expect it was hard for Matthew to work Jesus into conversations, right? My guess is that he couldn't go too long without talking about the, the man who had saved him from his old way of life and brought him into God's kingdom. Right? Those who have experienced God's unmerited favor, we should be the first to shower mercy on sin-sick people. Right? Those who have been inoculated to the lie that what God really wants is sacrifice, religious duty and performance, that, that what God really cares about is, is the clothes that you wear and the religious-sounding words that you speak, right? Those of us who have had our self-righteousness ripped out of us and had it replaced with mercy, we should be rushing to serve and love and care for the sin-sick, the prisoner, the immigrant, the outsider. Friends, experiencing the mercy and grace of Jesus ought to make us merciful, gracious people. At the beginning, I asked you who you'd want to share a meal with. Someone famous, someone beloved, someone important, someone interesting. What if we asked Jesus that question? Well, I think this passage tells us that he would say that he wants to have dinner with sinners like you and me. And friends, that's good news. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we delight in your great love for us that while we were sinners, you sent your Son to seek and save the lost. You sent your Son as the great physician coming for sin-sick people. Holy Spirit, we pray for any in our midst who, who are still blinded by self-righteousness or perhaps are too weighed down by their sin to think that Jesus would ever save them. Spirit, would you open their eyes to see their need for Christ and what a great and loving and merciful Savior He is. 
Would you make us more like Jesus, Holy Spirit? Would you help us to be loving and merciful? We pray all these things in his beautiful name. Amen.